Welcome to Smash the Class, a podcast that discusses topics in education from an anarchist perspective. This project is part of the Anarchist Pedagogies Collective, which seeks to create a space for anyone interested in anarchist education, regardless of expertise or background. In our fifth episode, we're joined by Renya of Come Together Counseling. They're an anarchist in Pennsylvania who conducts practice as a therapist. Much of their work discusses how they view the intersections of anarchism and therapy, which they discuss on their YouTube channel. I'll be your host, Nicole, and I'll give fair warning now that this conversation wanders between a lot of topics. Renya and I wanted to discuss the intersections of pedagogy and therapy because we recognize many of the similarities between the two, including how our learning spaces need to incorporate both. For me personally, it was definitely interesting to see how a lot of my experiences in education overlapped with those of someone working in therapy. We hit on a lot of topics, including the passive acceptance of authority figures, how we can work to overcome the bureaucracy in these spaces, and how our spaces can be responsive to the needs of those in them. Much of this conversation came from my interactions with Frenya about two of their videos in particular. Both of these videos will be linked in the show notes, and I recommend that you check those out after listening to this episode. Anyway, all that said, let's get into the interview. talking about which largely came from like looking through well me looking through your videos uh was this intersection of therapy and pedagogy and so I was wondering if maybe you could kind of tell me some of your ideas about that sure um so I think there's a lot of overlap between pedagogical method and what like what therapy is like both the good and the bad right like that these things tend to teach the same thing like on the one hand you have behaviorism which is you know meant to create uh certain outcomes that have been decided in advance and is restrictive of autonomy and then on the other hand you have this approach that is much more collaborative um that is this like mutual process of deciding together what are we doing and how do we set the terms of that and that the therapist or the teacher would be less of a authority figure and more of like someone who's been there and can help provide a context for like what we're doing. No, like I definitely see a lot of that overlap too. Um, starting with the collaborative part, uh, from my perspective as a teacher, like I definitely see that there is a lot of space for me to be able to work with my students very often and try to build up the things that they really want to do or to build up these skills that either they already have um, and want to continue working on or skills that they don't have but really would like to have that space to, you know, build on them, which is a uh, like a quick example is that I had a creative writing class uh, last year and 
I was constantly bringing in all these different things that they could work on. So, or, well, I wasn't bringing them in. I was basically going like, here's this thing, like, how do you want to do it? <laughs> and so they would just sit there and like figure out all the different ways. Um, and one of them was like a choose your own adventure kind of thing. And I had kids building websites and doing videos and whatnot. So like, yeah, I definitely see this area for like collaboration and having less authority or like a less of an authoritarian kind of uh, goal. Um, so like in the aspect of like therapy, um, how do you see that collaboration take place? The way I practice is um, to essentially show my process and to work together with my uh I don't love this word because it denotes like a business relationship, but like my clients, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, that paperwork that therapists would ordinarily do sort of behind closed doors and that there are the, this, there's this like veil of secrecy that people are not meant to access this and legally they can access it, but there are all of these barriers in place and they have to pay money and they have to send, they have to deal with this bureaucracy in order to access it at a lot of agencies. Um, I just invite them in and that's stuff that we do together. So um, at the beginning, uh, setting intentions for our work. And then as we progress, um, something I do is like share my notes, therapists take notes. Um, I share mine as a regular part of my process if that's something people are interested in. Um, this is not super common, I think, just because there's this expectation of like, this is part of the medical record. This is for like, you know, medical professionals. And so what can happen is that there are these uh, alternate stories of this is what's happening when we're together. And then this is what's happening when I'm writing about you. And for me, I'm trying to like be accountable by welcoming people in to the creation of those stories. No, I see that a lot too, like um, particularly with like grade books. Uh, I think would probably be um, the closest analog or even like student notes that like teachers might take, which I always like you, these aren't like official documents generally, but like they are, you do have like student files and a lot of times like grade books tend to have the most prominence within them. So like the comments that teachers make and it is very interesting that like sometimes people don't ask for them because they think that it's just part of that bureaucratic process as opposed to like something that they can you know take ownership of to be like okay what is this teacher doing what is this person saying about me uh how does this affect me in the long run <laughs> yeah are you so, familiar like, with this idea of like a permanent record yeah <laughs> what is that <laughs> um so this idea of a permanent record, I don't know that it is very, um, I don't know that it's very commonly used so much, but there's just this kind of like perception that like everything that you do kind of follows you throughout your life. So that like, um, and I don't think this is actually true of most schools. Um, I think it's almost kind of like a scare tactic in most places. Someone can definitely correct me on that, like if it is true for their like reality. 
but in all the places I've been, these kinds of like permanent records are not actually real. They are kind of like a scare tactic of just like, look at all these things that we've accumulated over these decades of you being in this system and like it just follows you even outside of the institution or like outside the school. <laughs> And I found that like a very strange way of like kind of coercing people into being like, you know, properly behaved children right. <laughs> um, or properly behaved students or teenagers or whatever. Um, it, it, it always felt really creepy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually went through a process of I went through and requested like my records from the previous schools that I had attended when I was growing up and also requesting my records from previous like therapist and psychiatrist. And what I learned was that um, my high school only kept my grades. So this idea of a permanent record, which had been used for disciplinary purposes, essentially did not exist. And the notes from my therapist and psychiatrist there it had passed this arbitrary length of time where they're required to hold on to it and so they were like hey you're out of luck we got rid of it um and i think for me just that was really frustrating because at the time i was a minor i didn't have the sort of awareness that that would be something that would be important is the way that they were representing my struggle. Um, they were medicalizing it. And that that had presumably been passed along and I had no knowledge of it until years later I figured, hey, this would be important and I couldn't access it. Yeah, I always find it very strange, like these kinds of notes, like looking at that accountability thing, um, thing, that accountability value. Um, but like, they're not actually being held accountable in a lot of spaces. So it's like, uh, like as individuals, we tend to have to take this up so much more. Um, so like from my perspective as a teacher, like in order to be accountable for the work that I've done like in the classroom and whatnot I have to or at least to me what I end up doing is sitting with my students very often and kind of going over like okay so this is what the work is that we've been doing here's what I see what do you see um particularly I think in um like when one of your videos like the embodying anarchist values as a therapist like the ways that you were talking about like how you share your notes and how you talk about like progress or um, changes or developments or things of that nature. It's like I was kind of going like this reminds me exactly of what I'm doing in the classroom with my students, which is largely just sitting there going, okay, so here's what I'm seeing. Here's how I understand where you are. So like, let's see if like what you understand is similar and where we can like meet. Hmm. I, I, I really like that. Yeah. I think this, uh, the strength of a relationship is in many ways determined by like the regularity of the checking in. Um, mm -hmm. Also, I'm curious, what age group do you work with? Um, well, this year I've kind of taken some time off, um, but mostly I tend to work with secondary. So I work with anyone between the ages of like 12 and 18. And I kind of run the same structure with all of them, regardless of age. <laughs> because 
like you can change your language you can kind of work with them in different ways and you can make it clear it's like okay if you don't get it just ask questions and we can deal with this <laughs> yeah i wonder if that 12 to 14 age range is a bit of a sweet spot because you get them a little bit older and if they don't have experience participating in their education they might struggle to and like there, there's a re-education process of what education even is that takes time right and if you get people a little younger they're not like burdened by these previous like authoritarian environments in the same way oh no definitely because like i would notice that so i had a couple kids the last couple years um who had come from a homeschooling background and so they would work with like democratic homeschooling uh collectives and they were really up for it because they had been doing that for so long that, you know, coming into school and just kind of slipping into the same structures or some of the similar uh, self-directed learning patterns, like, they got it. Whereas, like, other kids really were sitting there going, like, okay, what is it that I have to do? How do I do this? Like, what does it mean to um, improve? What does it, like, what does that look like? And I mean, I was lucky because I was in a private school. Um, I'm not going to say like that there's, you know, a benefit to being in public versus private. I don't really see a very big difference. I've worked in both. Um, but like in private schools, I had a little bit more uh, autonomy to kind of do these this kind of work. But yeah, they tend to kind of have these things where uh, you have to sit there and kind of work with them and be like, no, look, like. I don't want to grade you down on this because I like I don't believe in grades and like I'd even openly say that like I don't believe in grades I don't think this grade represents who you are I don't think it represents what you do mm. but yeah like getting them to recognize that it was just it was so like it was fun in some ways <laughs> because you get to see like this kind of genuine recognition like wait like what we're doing this this is weird <laughs> Yeah, I think in a similar sort of way, um, I sort of take a similar approach with diagnoses in that they don't so much define everything that someone experiences, but they're a useful sort of reference point when you your experience is broadcast to a larger institution, right? But that you know, people will come in saying, like, I'm an A student or I'm a B student, and, like, they have those expectations of what that means in a similar way to how people will uh, identify sometimes with certain, like, diagnoses or traits, and that there's usually more to the story. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, part of it is, like, hey, this can be helpful in certain ways, but there's this expansive piece of, like, what doesn't it capture? Yeah. And I also want to ask for your thoughts on that, because I know you mentioned, like, your sort of relationship with that. Um, well, as I say, like, I tend to, I don't really identify with, like, things, with, like, my, like, my own personal diagnoses, like, because I know that I was diagnosed with ADHD. Um, and so I find it very interesting, like, also kind of interacting with people. So, like, when I say, hey, like, yeah, I'm ADHD, it kind of at least gives people a little bit of a, a heads up to be like, okay, this person might um, look like they're not paying attention, but they actually are because, like, you know, 
we tend to be listening, but we have to do stuff at the same time, like drawing or doodling, because, you know, that whole, I don't, I don't know how to really phrase it because it's that whole, like, you know, having one part of my body, like actively working on something, like drawing something, even if it's thoughtless, because like, you know, doodling tends to be more thoughtless and not intentional. Um, but like people often will look at you going like, why aren't you paying attention? You're just like drawing on stuff and you have to sit there and like, no, I like this is how I have to listen. And sometimes it does help to be able to just to go like, look, hi, I've, I'm ADHD. You can maybe <laughs> understand like where I'm coming from or why I'm doing what I'm doing in order to, you know, process the environment around me or what I'm doing or what's going on. But I also see the same thing like with students uh, either in terms of like diagnoses where like kids will come in and they'll have like a diagnosis attached to them. And it is very helpful for them to be able to go like, hey, uh, I have dyslexia. Um, and then I know what I have to look for mm -hmm. uh, and how to help them. Although it's like, even though I'm also dyslexic, which is quite funny because again, like I'm a literature teacher generally. <laughs> so that makes it really interesting. Um, and kids kind of respond to that where it's like, hey, like this, this person can read books and do all this stuff and they're dyslexic and like they really resonate with that. Um, so there's that part too. But also when a dyslexic child comes into my classroom, I can at least sit with them going like, okay, so when you read, what are like some of the more difficult parts for you? What are the things that you struggle with? Um, what are things that I can make sure I don't do so that way you don't struggle? Like, you know. Oftentimes people will make um, these handouts that are, you know, two columns, like these two columns with like text side by side. And sometimes we don't know how to read that, like, you know, because occasionally we'll be wanting to like read instead of like read one column entirely, we'll want to read both columns at the same time. <laughs> and like, you know, it's one of the weird ways that like, how our relationship is to these formats and so like you know I have to kind of pay attention to stuff like that and be like okay so like I have some students who might struggle with this I need to just have uh one column and everyone else can largely deal with that mm. um so that's how I kind of see it but then there are also these traits that come along that don't really talk about who you are for it like how you're talking about like the A students or the B students um, and you have to sit there going like, what does this mean? Like, what does it mean to be an A student? If you think you're an A student, what does that encompass? Like, you don't have anything to kind of attach that to other than I've done really well at following directions, at least <laughs> like, that's how I've always understood it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a pretty good, uh, look at what makes an A student an A student is they're really good at following directions. I, I think, um, that people with different grades will have different internalized narratives about what those grades mean about them and that that will connect with like how they continue to perform in educational spaces and yeah so i guess part of the work is like deconstructing that and uh, i think in certain ways that can apply to diagnoses too but in other ways i certainly can see where you're coming from and saying like this is a helpful way to grasp what someone's needs are. And also when you're meeting someone's needs that other people benefit too, it sounds like. Yeah, I kind of think that like sometimes 
people will attach those labels a bit too tightly. Like, I think they're just really helpful in these ways where it's like, if you know what this label means, then you, you at least have some kind of background and able to go like, okay, so what does that mean for you? What does that like kind of help look like? Or what does, uh, what do your needs look like really? Because like, you know, someone who's dyslexic is not going to be dyslexic in the same way as everyone else. Um, some people struggle with certain letters a bit more than others. Some people have different reading needs. Um, sometimes fonts, like a, one of the perpetual online fights is always about Comic Sans, which makes me laugh really hard because like everyone's always going, oh, but Comic Sans is so good for dyslexic people. And I'm like, uh, actually, I can't read it. Mm. <laughs> and it doesn't bother me. Like I know a lot of people who are dyslexic and need Comic Sans because it is really helpful for them. But I always find it very funny that everyone's like, no, it's for every dyslexic person. You're like, I can't read this. <laughs> so I think it's really helpful in kind of being able to know what someone might need. But I always found it like a signpost rather than a direction. Mm. So like a signpost to go stop ask this person what things have helped them. <laughs> and I think in schools, when it comes to like diagnoses, um, this is something that teachers often like, okay, so I've been told that this kid is ADHD and this means like this kid is going to be doing all these stereotypical things like jumping off the walls and <laughs> like all these things, like these things that are typically attached to like certain people, like usually young white boys between the ages of like seven and 10 <laughs> mm -hmm. to the point where like, they don't actually know what it looks like when like, say someone who is perceived as like feminine has ADHD and what that might look like or what an adult with ADHD looks like. Cause the other part also tends to be that if you're an adult who says they have ADHD, it's like, Oh, that's a children's thing. Yeah, I guess what you're saying is just this flat thing of the narrative that there's like one thing that this has to mean and how um, that sort of makes it almost harder is like you have this thing that's supposed to help, but because people expect it to only mean one thing, they miss what someone's experiences are. Which kind of like, I don't know, it kind of makes me wonder, like, how does this, how do you see this translating into like therapy? Because, like, if I see this kind of flattening of these narratives in, like, education, I'm kind of wondering, like, what does this look like for you? Yeah, so this is very connected with agency and autonomy. So the theory of therapy that is most grounding for me is a therapy called narrative therapy. And... So I look at things through the lens of stories and storytelling and, you know, what stories people have told about themselves, what stories have been told about them, and how can we rewrite those stories. And a lot of people, when they initially come into therapy, have stories in which they passively accept what authority figures have said about them, or in which... Um, there's a lack of agency in certain ways. Um, there may be like a flattening of identity into like this representation that sort of like 
people perform identity in a certain way to be in community and it's a little disconnected from their specific way of being whatever that identity is so um i know you had watched my video internal versus external motivations and so this is where that like being externally connected to a thing in the way that it's talked about and like becoming that thing is mm -hmm. very distinct from internally finding a place that feels right and then finding language that sort of kind of fits and then can be a jumping off point to deepen um, from, from that starting point. So yeah, I think using what language and understanding people come in with as a sort of mm -hmm. jumping off point and a way to explore and just asking questions about, you know, where does that come from and what does that mean? And, you know, what do you have to say about that? And letting people sort of slowly like move around and shift and try out like new understandings. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think with that video in particular, the internal versus external motivation, like one of the things, and I'm going to quickly apologize because I did write stuff down as I was rewatching them. Um, one of the things that you put in there was like, that we're taught to not connect with our internal desires. So it's like, we just don't know what we want. And I think also it kind of extends to like, we don't know who we are. Right. without like having a lot of time to explore that. And oftentimes we're not really given that time to kind of explore, um, which also connects this idea of like navigating these concepts, not just for ourselves, but with other people. Right. And there was this whole part that I was kind of hoping maybe you might go like talk about it a little bit more or talk about it again um, with you were talking about like this difference between like responsive and reactionary, like desire, motivation, and politics. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about that. Um, so I think, you know, people can be reactionary across the political spectrum and reactionary is sort of like a quick emotional response to something that is within our sphere that we notice. So a reactionary response is not always a bad response. It is an immediate response. So for instance, something happens, we're gonna go out and protest it the next day or the same day, that's reactionary. That doesn't mean it's bad or wrong, um, but that there is a balance to be found with responsive motivation or responsive desire in which we're taking in information. We are sitting with it, sitting with our reality of what that context is. And we're making decisions about how we want to engage and we're building longer term frameworks for how do we move from one place to another place. So responsive um, desire, you do see also across the political spectrum. Yeah, I think like you see a lot of, um, like we see a lot of like reactionary or automatic or immediate responses, like all the time, they tend to be very like, uh, particularly put into the news. <laughs> Because those are the things that kind of are like snap reactions, definitely. But like responsive desires are like more often, like we don't really talk about them too much or like responsive motivation or responsive politics. I think it's interesting that we d either, we talk about them quite a lot and we don't realize that we're doing it <laughs> or we don't talk about them at all. Like <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Could you elaborate? Well, 
like, I think even within anarchist circles, and I think possibly because I've been actually doing a lot of, like, work regarding prefiguration and looking into this as um, something that is constantly discussed and trying to figure out, like, what does this actually look like or what does this actually mean? Um, oftentimes I'll just see people say it's like we need to prefigure society and this kind of leads into like some of the questions that you had asked in your video which were like what do we want the world to look like and oftentimes like it's just kind of left there at like that we need to prefigure society and you're kind of going okay how <laughs> what does this mean like who is doing this uh what intentions do we have uh, what impacts will that have? And I find it very interesting that it's like we kind of talk about it to some extent and then we kind of just shy away. Like sometimes we are talking about like how um, like we need to prefigure stuff, but we kind of stop short of all those really deeper questions. You know, like how do we get to those changes that we want to look for? Um, how do we, you know, find other people, all the questions that kind of like lead into prefiguration. Like we often, like we say, Hey, we need this. And then we kind of shy away and start talking about like, I don't know, historical anarchism. <laughs> yeah. I think I really appreciate this topic. I think a lot of us, it's really hard to see out of our immediate environments and the sort of short-term future. Um, I see a lot of value in envisioning utopia or utopian politics, not because mm -hmm. I think, oh, we're going to get here five, 10 years, see you around the corner, right? Like that's not why it's important to envision utopia. I think it's important because it clarifies our values and it clarifies where are we trying to go? Um, you know, anarchy is not an end state. It's an emergent decision-making process. And so if we know these are our values, this is the sort of world we want to live in, then we can go all the way back to the present and say, this is where we are now. How do we go step by step moving in that direction? And the funny thing is, this is exactly what therapy is like too, is people will, people will start therapy and they'll say, oh, I'd like to be happier. I'd like to be able to connect with people better in my relationships. You know, I'm not satisfied with this coping mechanism I've been doing. You know, people will, people will know how they want things to change, but they don't know how to get there. And so the process of us co-creating that journey is in, hey, I've thought a lot about this and you know how this can specifically be applied in your life. And when we in political organizing spaces come together as a group and bring our knowledges together, that we have different bodies of knowledge that will help us with like, what are these steps? How do we actually move? Because none of us have all the pieces, right? I certainly don't have all the answers. I think that's one of the things I often kind of start off with anytime someone asks for uh, like what I envision or how can we get there? What are your solutions? And it's like, I don't have all the answers. <laughs> 
because like these answers are always going to look very different for you know everyone's lived realities where it's like where I grew up in the states uh, is going to need a very different or a mostly different solution than where I live now in you know like eastern Europe (laughs) the culture is just different the people are different their desires are different their histories are slightly intertwined but still different enough (laughs) in systems theory there's this word equifinality which essentially means you can take different paths to reach a similar sort of end desired result and if we view essentially like anarchy means whatever values values or morals or like ways of being in connection with each other that we all can reach sort of similar answers that there will be a myriad of different local ways of reaching what those things are and that those are things people just have to move towards in their own processes there's no way of imposing that from the outside because that's not going to stick it's also kind of that uh idea that sometimes i think people often overlook or at least uh while they were in Europe, I noticed they overlooked it quite a lot, but like the Zapatistas often will say like that we want to have enough space for a world that contains many worlds. Mm. <laughs> I might have paraphrased it wrong, but it's that same kind of similar concept. Yeah, I think that exactly. I just, I absolutely love it because it gives you so many spaces or avenues for options and things to like for answers that you can have for anything (laughs) yeah i think when when we talk about like capital r revolution it's this like big grand like oh what are our plans for this what are we going to do for that um but it's not like this industrial like products that we can like make and then send out everywhere it's more of like a quilt or a patchwork of like different patterns that sort of all come together when you piece them together. As someone who sews, I absolutely love that. (laughs) (laughs) Like that is just one of my favorite metaphors is just seeing it like, yeah, like this is all just, it's a patchwork. It's all these little pieces that have been sewn together and kind of, they make something whole, but like you can kind of still take them apart and add more into it or replace them if it doesn't work. So I absolutely love like a lot of that, um, but kind of like kind of switching a little bit. Um, another thing that I know like we've privately talked about has been like uh, that anarchy should be based in love, yeah. and so I kind of want to move into that, and I kind of want to hear your ideas about what like what that means. Yeah, so I think it's a balance, right? Like it's a balance between anger and love and that these are not opposing forces but that they need each other in the sense that i think anger is an emotion that shows us that we have experienced injustice or that we are being reminded of a previous time when we experienced injustice right like there's the historical anger and then there's like the present anger and then there's like the intermingling of the two um and then love is our desire for connection both with ourselves and with the world around us, right? Not just people, but with our entire world. And we need both of these forces 
to create change. Um, in my own journey of like political organizing and radicalization, I started with anger. I think it makes a lot of sense to start with anger as we like see the messed up ways that we've been impacted by the world. And yes, I, say, I think a lot of us start with anger. Sorry to interrupt, but <laughs> I just oh, want to put that there. That's a, I, I think for a good reason, right? Like if we look at a grief process, it's also normal to start with anger. And I think grieving is another key to political change and organizing together is the need for grief that comes from a recognition of the situation that we're in and then a desire to build with love. I think that kind of meshes with one of the kind of ways that I tend to put it personally is that we need to dismantle like a lot of things. Um, and some people often are like, you just want to destroy everything. It's like, no, I think that we need to destroy parts of this, like not everything all at once, maybe. But it's like, we need to destroy it. So that way, when we rebuild it, we can be more intentional about what we're putting in there. So it's like, if you say, oh, I need to destroy the school. It's like, okay, so if we destroy it or we dismantle it, like what can we do to intentionally build something that provides that like education for people or gives them, I don't really like saying provides education because that implies that I still want to have this singular force going <laughs> into like one person's head. But it's like, how do you create a space or like a learning space that will properly benefit? I often will say stuff like that we need to destroy this school, um, but largely just because like as we start rebuilding these things, we need to think more about like the things that we're putting into it, almost like, you know, baking a cake or cooking something. You want to think about uh, the ingredients that you're putting in and why you're using them. Like, obviously, you're not going to destroy the cake in order to make it again. But, you know, a lot of mixed metaphors going on there. <laughs> I can sort of see where you're coming from. And I see also this as connected to abolitionary politics, um, which are kindred, I think, with anarchist, but not quite the same. Um, I think also it's like institutions don't exist in isolation. So we can say abolish schools or abolish police or abolish, you know, any segment of the mental health system. And what that entails is not simply like breaking it down into its parts and then putting it back together again with those same parts, but looking at the system of systems that it exists within and changing the context so that whatever role it claimed to have been filling that is now filled by a different role that has a natural accountability mechanism in place and in which there is more agency and autonomy for the people who are being served or like participating in that system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it should definitely not just be taking the things and putting them back, like just putting them back in because there's this whole act that at least to me, it's like, we need to like think about those specific pieces. Like, okay, is this useful? And then also starting to add like, who will this benefit and who can this harm? And I think sometimes we often overlook those kinds of questions or we answer them in very superficial ways. Like we don't stop to really think about like, to what 
extent um god i feel like an ib exam it's like to what extent this uh like this thing can impact people like and so i think like you know in kind of abolishing these systems it's nice to be able to like kind of look at each individual part of it and see like okay if we have this but like how does it work with this and try to see like all those different connections between everything yeah it's why all of our struggles are interconnected and it's why none of us have all of the answers and it's why we need to come together to address because the moment we address one thing the interlocking systems of oppression are very resilient right like they can shift and divert some power that's in one system into a different system so that our lives are still completely captured by this larger system of oppression uh, it really does have to come down all at once or not all in one moment but sort of like all collectively mm -hmm. because like you yeah, it's that whole idea, like, because we see it again and again with, like, the co-opting of certain struggles and certain movements, like, how we, like, we can look through history and we can see this definitely, and probably because, like, recently I've been doing a lot of reading about uh, labor history in, like, Puerto Rico, <laughs> so, like, this is where my thoughts are at the moment, Um but, like, you can see this exact thing in, like, the kind of labor struggles that were taking place uh, in, like, Puerto Rico and seeing how they were connected to other places like Cuba or Panama or the southern part of the United States, specifically, like, Florida. And you could kind of see, like, how they were struggling against, uh, so this is, like, in the 1920s, but, like, you can see how they are struggling against, like, all these, you know, colonial and imperialist systems, but also those same struggles kept getting co-opted by, say, like, the AFL. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of thing where it's like, the though the AFL was kind of, you know, supposedly supposed to help workers um, and to support them, you could kind of see how the AFL came in and, you know, uh, kind of co-opted their struggle and instead of liberating people, it still kind of kept them in the same system. It just shifted the weight somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, which which I think if we focus exclusively on labor, this is what tends to happen, is that we need a vision that includes labor and sort of all the other spheres of society. Yeah, like that it connects to everything. It also kind of reminds me there's, I think, something else that you had was it in the an embodying anarchist values where it's like you kind of said that it, uh, you, you one of your definitions of like anarchism was that it's like the interlinking of connections between me, you, and the community. Uh, I don't remember, um, but yeah, I like it. So we'll <laughs> you like it, and you can have it. It's it's definitely something, at least a paraphrasing of what you said. I think <laughs> if I was listening closely enough. Um, but, like, this kind of idea is something that I absolutely, like, I absolutely love. <laughs> um, so I think, I don't know where to go with it. I just want to just say it's, like, I absolutely love this kind of idea of the interlinking connections and kind of defining uh, anarchism as, like, those connections, but also as, like, a process. Yeah, I, I'm, my anarchism is also very grounded in, like, a complexity theory or systems 
theory sort of perspective where it's not one system, it's not one body of work, it is the emergence of those systems and of like changes. Like to me, anarchy could just be described as the process of change and connection. And from that perspective, it's not just one thing. It's like, it's in motion. Mm -hmm. No, I kind of identify with that quite a lot because I often bristle at whenever people say when we get to like an anarchist society and I'm always just kind of going like, but what is that? <laughs> like, what does this mean? What is an anarchist society? Um, what is this supposed to tell me? And I mean, I guess it, I guess what they're meaning is obviously like a collection of people who primarily work through anarchism, but I'm always kind of sitting there struggling with the kind of concepts uh, of saying like an anarchist society specifically, like what is this? What does this look like? Um, which might also tie into like just kind of thinking about, you know, like Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed. Like that's an anarchist society, but it still has all these controls and you're kind of going like, is that an anarchist society? And also just being able to imagine what an anarchist society is. So going back to, you know, being able to realize those desires. <laughs> I think something I'll say about like discourse, especially on the internet, is that sometimes people will take this set list of criteria and they'll do like a matching thing where it's like, does this match up with this criteria that I have for how this is supposed to look? And if not, I'm going to say, this isn't this, this isn't that, therefore, you shouldn't be supporting that. And critique can be helpful if it's based in relationships. Mm -hmm. The lack of that relationship and the presence of the critique means that it, it's looking at this thing, whatever it is, as being static. And to say, like, we're going to judge this thing for like where it is at this static point in time. Instead of to say, are there ways in which change of these specific things is possible? And where are the points or the relationships where that change can be built? Mm -hmm. uh, if that change isn't possible, like if we sort of like are looking at this thing, and this is more looking at process than at this set list of criteria. This is like, what is the process for addressing whatever is coming up in this space, in this organization, in this country, whatever. If it seems like that there's a process in which these things aren't being addressed, then the critique should lie with the process, not the lack of like whatever criteria. No, I like that. Like that kind of helps to give like a clarification um, or at least to make it a little bit easier. Cause like, I think there's also this whole idea of that everything uh, and I think maybe I think this because I am like from the U.S., but I don't live in the U.S., <laughs> so I kind of have this perspective of being kind of stuck between the two, um, where it's like oftentimes people, particularly in the United States, will just kind of prescribe what these things look like. Um, I think that's also largely because of the, you know, the hegemonic culture of the United States is that we often go into places like, this is what this thing should look like. <laughs> and I still kind of notice that there are, and it's not to say that they're not anarchists or anything, but it's like, I noticed that there are anarchists who often still do this because like they've 
not really interacted with non-US spaces. And I think I also kind of see this a bit too with like um, English speakers in general, like, you know, people in the United Kingdom or in Canada, um, which is not to say that they, we shouldn't listen to anyone in these places. But I do often notice that they will sit, kind of prescribe this list and these critiques and this criteria, but then they will often overlook like the experiences of people who don't live there or who are trying to understand their environments and recognize like, okay, what would an anarchism look in, uh, what would anarchism look like in you know, Slovakia? What would it look like in Slovenia? What could it look like in Korea? <laughs> and so I often kind of see like these um, kind of frustrations, I think, or tensions between these like groups of people as well. And I think like that could also offer like a really good clarification between the two, where it's just like, okay, for you, you might have a relationship to this place and these people, like for, you know, like in the United States, a person from St. Louis will have a relationship to places or people in St. Louis and to the city and its surroundings. But like they might not have the same kind of relationship to like Czechia. <laughs> and I think it helps them, like if that would be really helpful to be able to go, it's like, okay, I have a critique of the process um, maybe that could help you guys to see like what's going on and then like also being able and willing to look at like the other critiques of process without like personally pushing them onto like someone who hasn't met all these criteria, <laughs> if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> yeah. And I think, why do we use this list of criteria? I think it comes from a sense of powerlessness, right? Because this is something that we can sit and do without relationships and without being embedded in these processes is we can almost in a way of like like media criticism of like here are these things i'm gonna engage with this in my own way and then i'll this is my perspective on it mm -hmm. you know the media doesn't talk back to you um so it's a one-way form of communication whereas um if we are grounded in our relationships. I, I think what I want to stress is that our politics are only as strong as the relationships that support them. And that's really the point of what that process is. Mm -hmm. And to bring this all the way back around, therapy, that process is built on that relationship. And I would say, I mean, you tell me, like, is teaching or is pedagogy sort of that same, like, is built on the relationships that you develop? No, I, I, I agree completely because being able to, <laughs> say, being able to kind of, like, work with people, like, to work specifically with people and in very kind of, like, I don't want to say intimate settings because that just sounds weird. But, you know, like really close settings where you get to know people over a long period of time. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, like you work with like the same kids every single day in a school and you kind of get to know them and to know who they are and what their personalities are. Or at least you get to know like one aspect of them. 
um, or whatever it is that they'll let you learn. And the same thing kind of goes with me, where it's like, I only let them know certain things because at some point it it's just, it would be weird. <laughs> right. <laughs> that they know everything about me. Like, that would just be really strange to me in some, like, some ways. But also you kind of have that relationship with, like, anyone, honestly. Like, even though I have my partner here, like, he doesn't know everything about me. Um which is fine because I don't know everything about him. <laughs> but like I the things I would share with him are much different than like obviously the things I would share with, you know, a student <laughs> because of those relationships, those differences. But like working with those kids, um, like you start learning about them and you do have to be able to, you know, both ways. Both people have to be able to know how to negotiate those boundaries and to negotiate those personalities where it's like sometimes there are kids who I can use sarcasm with, for example, because they respond better to it and they like those kinds of jokes. But there are kids for whom I can't do that. And I have to kind of learn those boundaries and learn like how to navigate those relationships. And if I tend to upset that relationship too much, then like while it might not always be like my fault, but there might also just be a point in time where like maybe I'm the one who angers someone so much that they like snap at someone else or it completely ruins their day. And you kind of have to learn like to, like where is that boundary? Where is that, like when might that happen? And if it does happen because it's inevitable, like that's just how relationships with people work. <laughs> Like, what do you do after the fact? Like, how do I respond to it? How do I um, apologize? Or how do I f go about finding out, like, okay, was it me that did this? Or was it something else? If it was something else, do you want to talk about it? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the repair is the most important part of the relationship. Like, when there's a breach in trust or in some sort of relationship dynamic that the repair mm -hmm. will determine like what happens, not the initial thing. And again, that comes from like, what did the relationship look like before? Is there a process or a way of thinking about how we're going to do this repair? I also kind of notice sometimes that this might just be a paraphrase of what you just said or a clarification, maybe, I don't know, but like it is those moments of tension that tend to kind of, bring us together in these weird sorts of ways yes. where it's like you start because that's where you start realizing like to what extent you can trust someone mm -hmm. so it's like most of the students I worked with um like the ones who I still talk to now they like I still talk to them now because they they realize that like I would just listen to them that I would just be an ear for whatever problems they might have and if they want advice they just have to tell me and if they just want to you know shout at a void who might go uh-huh then <laughs> I could do that too like they have to tell me what it is they want but like those moments of tension you start realizing exactly what it is that people are uh, going to do um and even if it's not like tension between the two of you like maybe it's an external kind of tension where it's like um, you know, like you get into a fight with your friend or you have these major issues with your family and 
then you go to someone else and you try to talk to them and what like what their response is also is part of that kind of like relationship building as well. Yeah, I strongly agree that it's during these times of tension that we can work things out and maybe increase our closeness or we can't. And that sort of leads to the dissolution of our relationship. I will draw a parallel with a sort of political process because I think a lot of interpersonal and political processes are very similar, just operating on different scales. Uh, I'm sure you've heard, uh, I think Rosa Luxemburg said like socialism or barbarism, <laughs> right? And I think that's the same process. Like, and, and we see this too, like again and again, where there is a rising left-wing movement in a particular space, there often is a corresponding right-wing movement because we realize at the same time that the center is is not working and there are new possibilities that can sort of go in a multitude of different directions the same applies politically the same applies in our relationships yeah and it's definitely something that we're seeing again (laughs) but yeah like we definitely start seeing all these tensions like and again, like these two things are also very interlinked. So even though they are parallel, which I definitely agree with, you can also start seeing the ways in which like people start building relationships just through like certain forms of struggle, um, even within movements. So like uh, very oddly to me personally, um, it often feels like uh, anarchism has a bit of an issue with misogyny or at least like anarchist organizations have a issue with misogyny, not like anarchists in general. Uh, this is kind of common across like the political spectrum. So it's not just anarchists, but you know, being someone who participates in anarchist organizations, this is something I tend to notice quite a lot. And it is one of the few things that I've also noticed tends to break up these organizations. And every time they do fall apart, I start noticing the the ways in which people start kind of like deviating and it typically falls around like um in the small scale around like one person or in the large scale around like a political idea um and so I like I kind of notice this even in like these smaller organizations like and how the relationships are built between the people who are within those spaces um and the I don't know, like, I just, I find those kinds of things very interesting. <laughs> so I don't know if that's too far off, but. <laughs> yeah, I definitely see what you mean. I think any sort of anarchist or other radical space will recreate anything that they're not explicitly paying attention to trying not to recreate, right? So often there's different groups of people and there's different dynamics with the way that plays out in terms of who does what labor and whose perspective is valued and what does a safe space look like and who gets to determine that and like what does democracy look like all of these things um yeah are like the main ways that we get derailed in our movements is because that there are these 
there are these tensions that exist in the wider worlds that we bring in and it's like reenact or like replay and we don't have a way of resolving that so you know i think to return to this idea of building with love and the relationship between love and anger is i think one we need to know like our own sort of reaction and to be mindful of what we bring into a space mm -hmm. and then to be able to hold other people in that and for us to be willing to hold each other accountable i think really comes from a place of love and to be willing to work through some of this stuff because when do when do things fall apart is when ego gets in the way and when people are unwilling or unable to be accountable for whatever reason mm -hmm. i also kind of see it as like connecting backwards quite a bit like to the ways in which like these institutions we're in are built so specifically like the school if we were to use that one um but like the ways in which all of the expectations there are kind of like built in like throughout all the years and into children um like how parents treat kids how teachers treat kids how children who go through like religious services learn um a lot of the correct with air quotes cultural values like all of those kinds of things i kind of see how that like all circles back together <laughs> i'll use a specific example from the mental health world if that is okay yeah so this idea of self-care which i think was originally i'm just gonna google who came up with that term i remember something about self-care being like originally something very minimal like actually taking care of yourself and then it's like developed into this absolute monstrosity of self-help stuff um the person who originally this is deriving from is audrey lord who was a black radical feminist and mm -hmm. she was sort of looking at self-care as like having given so much of herself and also she was disabled i believe having given so much of herself to um other people and to organizing that it was radical to choose to take care of herself and over time that this term has been commodified in the form of selling products that give you this experience of caring for yourself and it's this very individualized experience where previously that it wasn't necessarily that the self meant the individual self, but it could have also been community self. Mm -hmm. And yes, it is important to take care of our own individual needs, but that also those needs are interconnected with the community. And when we take care of those needs at a larger scale, then that maybe can be easier because we spread out the work. So in an organizing capacity, for instance, someone might say, oh, you know, we need to do some self-care because certain people are getting burnt out because of whatever reason. They view it as the individual's responsibility because of the way this term is used, the individual's responsibility to take care of themselves. And this is how people mm -hmm. burn out, right? Is that actually is the organization's responsibility. Mutual care is how are we taking care of each other as we're doing this? I think mutual care is actually one of the things that I know... Um, within the collective, we tend to talk about it quite a lot. 
particularly because we don't, uh, not not that we don't like the idea of self-care, because like actually we do really like the original intent of self-care, not what it's become. Um, but like mutual care is something that we're constantly trying to think of, particularly whenever we put together any sort of uh, project because it's like okay if we're all working on this what are we doing to take care of each other to make sure that you know we're not going to burn out or um, <laughs> you know just on that really small scale like trying to figure out like how we can take the weight off each other while still being able to push through. I appreciate that yeah I think that um, it's necessary for it to be sustainable. It's definitely something that I also tried to do within like schools. Um, so kind of like looking at the pedagogy or pedagogical side, or at least the traditional pedagogical side, because I do think that there's a lot of space um, otherwise unexplored. But like in terms of the traditional pedagogical side, um, it also kind of comes back to like that whole negotiating of like, okay, we have this really shitty system that we have to work with. Um and for me, it tends to be like having to put grades in a book, um, how, having to, you know, basically impact the future of this kid who like, it's like, it's ludicrous to me that, you know, if you get an A in your English class, um, that you are somehow guaranteed something really great. But if you get a D, you're like being punished or penalized. Like even if it was, you know, five years difference, <laughs> like if you, and to me, that's just ludicrous. Um, so I'm always trying to kind of work in these like mutual care sorts of ways where it's like, okay, so like, here's the schedule that I have to meet. Um, like, you know, this is when I have to turn all my grades in. This is when everything has to be done for me. Uh, let's try to work through these systems together because like, I know that some of your other classes have a ton of work. <laughs> uh, so we can work on trying to make sure that like you have everything done. Um, we can make sure that you have these skills. So I don't necessarily have to grade you on this specific assignment. Like I don't really need a grade here or I can just kind of like put in the full marks and pretend that it was done, <laughs> which uh, I'm not going to claim I've always did that, but you know, this is an example, <laughs> but you know, like trying to, trying to find those mutual spaces to do like this kind of thing. Yeah. And in, in relation to your comment about having not always done this, I think there's a process of learning. Like what are the, what are the ways that we can find humanity as people who have to work with these like larger oppressive systems? Like what are the ways that we can push back and find space carve out space um which is why it's yeah these larger inhumane <laughs> systems yeah <laughs> sorry continue yeah it's just to say like that's why i guess it's important for us to communicate about how we do that and to find those spaces um yeah to learn from each other hmm. so what are some other ways like because i know I'm just going to bring this part up because like, I know that there's like this huge and I've, I feel like I fit a more third option that's never really talked about, but like, there's this whole like anti-psych sort of thing. Like you have people who are very anti-psych, people who are very pro-psych. Uh, I kind of find myself in this middle ground of being skeptical, but I understand most of it. <laughs> like I'm kind of skeptical of the system. I'm not really skeptical that like people need help. Like I think people 
who want help should have it. Um, so I kind of find myself in this like third option <laughs> between the two. Because, like, you often get these people who are very, like, anti-psychiatry or anti-psychology because of the oppressiveness of the system. And it often leads to some, to me, very dark places where it's like, oh, these people don't actually need this medication. Um, or, and you, like, for me, I know that people often might need the medication, because, especially to fo uh, function. I hate using words like function. Um, but, like, in order to exist within this system... <laughs> And then you have people who are very pro-psychiatry kind of like pretending that there aren't these issues um, or kind of glossing over them in very unhelpful kind of ways. But I was kind of wondering, like, how does like all of that, like that mutual care and kind of that understanding, like how does that all kind of play? Or even just like, what do you think about this area with regards to your job? Yeah, um, I, I have a lot of thoughts about, you know, the legacy of, the anti-psychiatry movement and sort of like what what to do about that system. And um, I do think a big part of it is building alternative capacities for support. So, um, you know, building networks of peer support mm -hmm. um, and preferably that peer support is not like sort of uh, surveilled by so-called professionals, but that it like truly is independent. Um, yeah, I think in our, in our current society that there are sometimes just situations where people do need to use these systems. Um, that doesn't mean that they're doing any less harm. And mm -hmm. I think what I would prioritize is while building these alternate capacities, um, learning together about what the impacts of these systems are and sort of like if I do or say this this is the outcome and so having agency in terms of like do I do or say this thing mm -hmm. right um yeah and, and the other thing I'll say about psychiatry is that I think really the core the core piece of organizing around psychiatry is in um, subverting the propaganda around the biological origins of suffering. Um, in that, I think psychiatry really heavily pushes this, and it's not just psychiatry, but the sort of like mainstream mental health model pushes this idea that our suffering is biologically instantiated when um, what this, from my, from my perspective, this takes agency away from us. And so what I would say instead is that there are biological changes as a result of the oppression and developmental trauma that we experience. And that these tools that are available can help us to navigate in the moment, whatever that looks like, Mm -hmm. But to really critique, because I think this, the biological supremacy is connected with capitalism and white supremacy and with colonialism. And this narrative that um, everything sort of rests on the biology, I think that is like what the hegemony depends on. And I think it should be countered everywhere. So really that, that 
is what I would say is that people can choose for themselves, I think, to take on certain identities, to use certain forms of support while we're building alternatives. I kind of noticed that the biological part tends to take precedence. And while like there are like they a lot of it a lot, but like some of it tends to be yeah, it is biological. But it also kind of not only removes the agency, like to me, of the person. Um, so, like, anytime using myself as an example, like, whenever people will say it's like, oh, they're ADHD, which means that they are going to be like this. And it's just kind of like putting me into this box that I didn't ask for. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it's like, yeah, I am ADHD, but I also have like personal agency. But also, it takes, like, to me, it creates an excuse rather than takes away a form of agency where people who don't have to deal with that or don't feel like they should have to deal with that choose not to. So it's like they might create a space that is very difficult for me to exist in and they put all the blame on both, like, myself for not being able to handle that Mm -hmm. Or my biology for making it impossible. So it's like, how can we deal with that? (laughs) I find that a very frustrating and bizarre way of handling something when like, I could just go and go like, hey, like this environment's really distracting. Do you think that we could put this here? And that would kind of like lessen that. Or if we have less noise, that would help out. So I feel like not only does it take away agency, like it also takes away responsibility. Mm. <laughs> yes. I, I appreciate you bringing that part in. I do think it is everyone's responsibility to not just make spaces accessible, but to change the systems so that they're truly welcoming of all of our different needs and that there's again a process of accountability for how those shifts can be integrated and also like this understanding that while yeah we are responsible for things um it's okay that we don't know because i think this is something else that a lot of people tend to kind of use as a um What's the word I'm looking for? It feels like this is something that a lot of people tend to use as like a cudgel, where it's like, oh, you didn't know that you have to do this? How horrible of you. And it's just kind of like, well, not everyone has had to work with someone who ha- who they know or who needs these supports. Um, and it's okay to not know. And it's okay to, you know, put up a question that's just like, okay, we've tried our best to make this accessible, but what do you need? Like, tell us in advance. And we'll try to do that. And I think a lot of people are scared to do that for some reason. (laughs) Like for this fear of being wrong, which like I see again, like in a lot of students, and I don't know if you see this a lot in therapy that like people just don't want to be wrong or to make a mistake or things like that. (laughs) Yeah, I think that connects with like perfectionism as one of the values of capitalism and white supremacy is that people have a hard time being vulnerable and asking for specific supports. Um, so I think, again, I would return to this idea of like the relationships and that the strength of our politics is embedded in our relationships. And so the ability to ask for specific supports, I think it, I, I think it's, 
it's impossible to be accommodating of everyone before communicating with them, right? So the need for there to be a process in which people feel safe and supported in shaping the space. Yeah, it's like this idea that um, one of the things I hated whenever I was doing my teaching program was that one of the classes about special education which is also a phrase I, I absolutely loathe as a concept, just calling it special, because it's like, it's just accommodations, it's necessities, it's not special. <laughs> um, but anyway, when I was doing this class on like special education, they kept kind of trying to hammer home that you should be aware of everything before it happens, which I'm pretty sure that you're aware is not possible. <laughs> But, like, the fact that they would just keep saying this, like, otherwise you're a really bad teacher if you've not made sure that your classroom is 100% uh, accessible, inclusive, before that student gets there. Um, and it's just kind of going, like, but if I, like, how am I going to do this if I don't know what their, like, needs are? Like, if I have a student in my classroom, it's like, well, even if they're, they have the same diagnoses as myself their needs are not going to be the same. <laughs> and I remember fighting, like trying to kind of fight that back in that class. And I kept getting told like, no, you have to prepare for everything. And you're just kind of going, this is not humanly possible. And so I kind of think that like our education systems um, definitely kind of hammer this home, like in the very, like in very young people as well, like throughout school. But just this idea that we have to be, like, we have to have everything finished immediately. We have to have the correct answer at the beginning, and we can't leave anything out unless it's okay to leave out because, like, society says it's fine. <laughs> I, again, I think perfectionism comes to mind is that in that course you were told, like, you know, you must be perfect for these students, otherwise you're failing them, which then sets you up to expect the same thing from them if you're accepting the ideology that you're being taught. Just that whole cycle of just continually telling people that they have to be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I actually think that that's good for this time, but if we ever want to do it again, I would absolutely love to do this again. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe we can sort of let this sit for some time and sort of see what parts we want to return to and what parts we can expand into. I think it was sort of a little like all over the place, which was good. There was a lot we talked about, I think was. I totally warned you of that though. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was all connected. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad that I got to talk with Renya and that they took the time to talk with us. If you liked what you heard, please go check out their YouTube channel or look for them on various social media platforms. And if you want to hear more from us at the APC, go to our website at anarchistpedagogies.net where you can find more information and links to our social media. Everything will be linked in the show notes below. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.